I'm sure it comes as no surprise to you that there is sin in the world and we need to confront the sin in this world. But when it comes to the harsh reality, there is sin in this room, it becomes a little bit more uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about our sin uh, up close and personal. We would prefer to talk about what's going on out there, but we need to. You've perhaps been in a small group in our church. We prioritize small group ministry and I'm meeting with my life group this afternoon and I know how easy it's going to be in that life group setting to talk about sin of the world, right? We could talk about our government, our school board. We could talk about all matter of things outside the group. I hope it doesn't happen today, but it certainly has happened in the past that you have somebody in your life group, sometimes it's myself, that says something that reveals our own sin. And when we're confessing sin intentionally, it's one thing, but when sin just comes out and you're like, sometimes there's even a laugh dismissing it. It's an incredibly awkward situation because you know, when you hear it, you're like, ah, I wish I hadn't heard that. Something needs to be said right now. I can't just let this go, but it's incredibly awkward. Likewise, it's incredibly awkward when you have to be confronted in your sin. If you've ever been confronted, you know, that feeling of you go all clammy or you, you get your heart rate increases and you're, you're put on the spot. It feels very uncomfortable and sometimes embarrassing. Now, in our day and age, some people have difficulty even having it pointed out that they have some food in their teeth and they feel all embarrassed about that. How much more so when it comes to sin in our life? In many ways, I believe we have become oversensitive to our own discomfort and undersensitive to the holiness of God. And as a result, we've lost the discipline of regularly correcting one another in love. But we need to. We need to restore that discipline to where it should be if we are going to see God glorified and others blessed. So this is the message for this morning. We must be willing to confront sin and we must be willing to be confronted in our sin. It's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. It's, it's actually risky at times, but it is the right thing to do. So we're going to see that from Joshua chapter 22, how God's word addresses this. And the question I want you to keep in your mind to help guide us through the text is this, how does a focus on God's glory and on the good of his people change the way we confront sin and also change our response when we are confronted in sin? So confrontation of sin is going to happen We need to keep God's glory and the good of others the priority. And how does that change? How does it make it better? We're going to see that in this passage at a great example. Now, sadly, many of us have not had great examples of sin being confronted. Maybe we've not practiced it well, or it's not been practiced well in our lives. So I want us all to have the attitude this morning of we can learn something from scripture. Hopefully you came with that. Hopefully you came ready to learn, not ready to apply this to somebody else's life. (laughs) Hopefully you're ready to apply it to your own because reality is somebody has mishandled conflict with you and they've confronted you poorly. So you could read this, learn the message today and say, they should have done a better job, but that's not where we're going. I want you to focus on your own life and application of this. How could I have received that rebuke better? Or perhaps how did I get confrontation of sin wrong in the past? We're going to read a longer chunk of text from uh, Joshua 22. And that's because it's a narrative section. I don't want to chop it all up. So I'm going to do it a little different this morning. 
to read a substantial length of text and hopefully you'll stay engaged better that way. So just keep that in mind because it's going to be reading a bit. But before I do that, I want to set the stage for you because we're jumping in at Joshua 22 and what's happened before then? God has chosen a people, the people of Israel to represent him and they were promised a special land called the promised land. That was something God had promised them. And Joshua is really all about them taking possession of that land. It's the fulfillment of those promises. So at the beginning of Joshua, we read about how they entered into the land. It's actually quite remarkable. Moses had brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. And I guess for you, it's this way out of Egypt and up to the east side of the Jordan River into the plains of Moab, we would call it. With Joshua and under their leadership, they miraculously crossed the Jordan River. God parts the Jordan River, much like he parted the Red Sea, which is in some ways to just show the people of Israel that Joshua is the appointed leader of the people. Then they go across and they, they capture Jericho, which is a feat in of itself. It's a fortified city. And this was an incredible display of God's power and provision. So this all happens, but then we learn quickly, things are not all great because when they plundered or when they took Jericho, one Israelite man named Achan took some of the plunder against God's command. God had clearly commanded they were not to take any of it. Achan took some. And because of that, God's judgment came on the people of Israel. The next time they went to war, they lost and they lost miserably when they should have statistically won. And 36 people died because of that. And so then it was like, oh, what's wrong? God shows them it's Achan and his sin. And Achan is then put to death along with his family, who was likely members of the cover-up, so to speak, of his sin. So right early on in Joshua, we're seeing God's trying to bring his people into the land, but he is incredibly concerned that they are obedient to his word. And if they aren't, there will be a judgment. So they're conquering land, Joshua 22. By the time we get there, they've conquered the land. And now they're dividing it up into different sections. So there's 12 tribes of Israel. It's a little bit more complicated. You can read it, but they basically divide it up 12 ways. But some of the tribes, three, two and a half really, get land on the east side of the Jordan River where Moses had landed. And Moses had promised these tribes that land. But Joshua had said to these tribes, hey, come with us, at least the men, come with us as we clear the land of Canaan and then you can go back. And so they had done that. And now Joshua 22 is where these men are going back to their tribe on the east side. This will all make more sense as we read the passage. And so we're going to turn into Joshua 22 and verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord, your God. And now the Lord, your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord gave you on the other side of the Jordan. That's on the East side. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord commanded you to love the Lord, your God, and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Now to one half of the tribe of Manasseh, 
Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock and with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. Quick pit stop. Shiloh is a place in the West where the Western tribes are that God had appointed for his name to be worshiped. That's where he said, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting where God would meet with his people. And that's where they were to set up the altar for sacrifices and worship. So Shiloh was the place of worship for the people of Israel. It was also the place where the Israelites would meet as kind of like a military capital. If they were to do things, keep that in mind as we continue on. Verse 10, and when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. That's going to be a problem. Verse 11, and the people of Israel heard it said, behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him 10 chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land in your, of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourself a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon the congregation of Israel. And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. And now we have the response from the other tribes. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know if it wasn't rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings, or peace offerings on it, 
May the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in the time to come, your children might say to our children, quote, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, end quote. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the services of the Lord in his presence with burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. In other words, you got it wrong. <laughs> you got it wrong. I know what this looks like. This looks like idolatry, but this is actually coming from a place of devotion to the Lord, not idolatry. And verse 30, Phineas responds. He says, Phineas and the priests and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the family of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke. It was good in their eyes. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priests and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. I love this passage for so many reasons. First of all, it ends well. <laughs> Everybody needs a good ending once in a while. You're like, okay, the sin was confronted and it wasn't sin in the end. That's a good news story. And it could have gone wrong so many ways, but there's some really illustrative principles here that I think we can put into practice. And that's why I love it as well. So the first thing, kind of circling back and hopefully you have the Bible in front of you, you can, you can go back and see this as we're walking through it. The first thing that stands out to me, how they do conflict and confrontation, confrontation of sin well, the people of Israel are willing to confront sin, even if it is close to home. And we need to likewise be willing to confront sin even, and maybe we should say, especially if it is close to home. The text tells us that these tribes on the western side of the Jordan were ready to go to war against the tribes on the eastern side, which sounds a little extreme to us, but it actually reveals their worldview. It reveals their devotion to the Lord. They saw what they thought was clear disobedience and rebellion against God, blasphemy really. And they were serious about it enough to take action against their own flesh and blood. You got to consider the tribe of Manasseh is split in half here. One half is on the Western side, ready to wage war against 
literally their family on the other side. They are ready to take it seriously. Now, just a few days or weeks or months before, the tribes on the east and the tribes in the west had been united and they had been fighting the people of the Canaanites, all the, all the, the people in Jericho, etc. So they had been at war together. When you're at war together, you can build a camaraderie and a, a loyalty towards one another that's pretty significant. And if you're not careful, that loyalty can supersede your loyalty to the king. But that didn't happen here. Their loyalty to each other was not superseded by their loyalty to the king. They were willing to war against their own flesh and blood because it appeared that they had defected and rebelled against God. Several years ago, my wife and I had bought a used vehicle and the used vehicle had a firefighter sticker in the front window. And we thought, oh, it's handy to have there. And I've been told, we didn't ever experience this just to, to clarify, but I've been told that if you get pulled over speeding and you have the firefighter sticker in your windshield, that you won't get the speeding ticket. Now, I don't know if that's true. I've heard it. I've heard it actually works with police officers that way as well. If you get pulled over and you're a police officer, you, you, get, you get off. And there's kind of like this immunity that exists, at least on a certain level, because of your profession. Some people think that this is how it should work in the church. And sadly, sometimes this is how it does work in the church. But it isn't supposed to. There is not supposed to be sins overlooked just because they're close to you or because that person is powerful or because that person is family. This text stands in contrast to that. Our allegiance needs to be with the king of kings first and foremost. He gets our first loyalty and anyone who would dare to rebel against God needs to be confronted in their sins. Anyone. Impartiality in the church and in our homes is a very important priority, but it's also very difficult. One of the qualifications to be an elder, a leader in the church, is that you have to manage your household well. And the reason for that, in part, is because if you can't confront sin in your own home, how in the world are you supposed to be expected to be impartial in confronting sins in the church? How would you be able to manage it well? So you may have seen in the past experiences where oh, that church does not confront sin, or that leadership does not confront sin. Why is that? I would ask you to look closely at the homes of those leaders. And more often than you'll not, you'll find they're not confronting sin in their own home. And because they're not confronting sin in their own home, they're not equipped to confront sin or willing to confront sin properly and impartially in the church. You need to consider for your own life do you have people that are, quote, off limits when it comes to the confrontation of sin? Do you have people that are untouchable, that you cannot confront sin? If you do, those people are your God. That is what you're revealing because you are unwilling to speak the truth that needs to be spoken. Now, certainly there's wisdom in a child, not just calling out their parents all the time for every little thing to try that. And that's not going to go well. However, if there is a person in your life that has a serious sin of idolatry and you are not willing to speak to it, that person has become the God in your life. 
Jesus himself said that following him would have the potential and really the reality to divide the closest of relationships, siblings, parents, and children. And you can look at Matthew 10 for that. Many of you know that we've been through quite a lot as a church family in the past, and we could have a sense of brotherhood or sisterhood, family feel where it's like we've gone through a lot and we've, we've been in war together, so to speak. But that doesn't give us a pass or immunity against confronting sin. We must, we must confront sin and we must be willing to be confronted in our sin. Before we move to the next point, I want to draw your eyes to one it's interesting piece of background in the text. So I mentioned that the temple or the, um, the uh, tabernacle is what was set up at Shiloh. And that's where God had told them to put his altar. Deuteronomy 12 lays out God's plan for that. He says, where I tell you to build my altar, you build it. And then you worship there. And there's only going to be one. The reason he's telling them is the pagans have tons of ideas of how to worship their gods. Pagans build multiple altars, altars of convenience. That's too far. We'll just build an altar here. That's okay. The pagans can do that, but not, not so in ancient Israel. God wanted one place of worship, one consistent place of worship. And this is just a reminder to us about our worship. It's not about convenience. Our worship is about obedience. In August, I'll have the opportunity to preach a message on worship. So this is a little teaser for you to start thinking about. But when we come to worship God, our worship is for him and him alone. It's not for us. Our worship isn't about our convenience or our ease or even our feelings. It's, it's about ascribing to him the worth that he is due. So every time we come into a setting where we are singing his praise, we're singing. Whether we feel like singing or not singing, whether the song is our favorite song or not our favorite song, we're singing not because we love the song, but because we want to honor God. We want to tell people he is worthy of worship. It's not about you, it's about him. So put that thought in your mind and we'll come back to it in August. Now, looking back at the text, you can see that the people of the Western tribes are all about the glory of God, but also the good of their brothers. They're willing to confront sin, but they're also willing to be strategic about it. If you want to see God glorified and people blessed, we need to confront sin strategically. This is a wisdom issue. There's some people that think, okay, we got to confront sin. I got that message. So I'm just going to be a bull in a china shop and say what needs to be said. And I don't care what happens. I just got to speak the truth and praise God for their willingness to be zealous. But there's wisdom that's needed. Proverbs tells us that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. So there's a good way to confront sin and a bad way. And just to illustrate this, I'm going to give you an example. Here's a bad way to confront sin. A brother is lied and you know about it. You go up to your brother and you say, brother, I need to talk to you about something serious. You've lied. Now I never lie. Let me tell you three reasons why I'm better than you because I've never lied. And now please repent of your lying. Okay, you've confronted your brother's sin, but you have totally botched it because that was all about you. That was you as the righteous standard comparing him to you. When we confront sin, we need to be strategic. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but there's a good way and a bad way. This is a excellent example of a good way to confront sin. So look at the way 
the Western tribes confront sin. They were ready to wage war, but they did not wage war right away. They did not act irreversibly on their assumptions. They investigated first. I want you to just imagine for a second how this would have gone differently today. There's a church that builds an altar. Somebody captures it on video and puts it out to social media that this church is worshiping at an altar. And all of a sudden, thousands, millions of people are condemning and are attacking and waging war before somebody can even explain that this was actually a memorial thing that they set up. It would be so complicated by how quickly it would get out of hand. We need to be incredibly careful that we don't wage war on somebody because of wrong assumptions. It's okay to confront what appears to be sin, but be strategic about it. Before you post a conclusion, investigate. This is going to get incredibly difficult in the future. Our church Churches and Christians are going to need incredible discernment going forward. I rarely make a judgment call on somebody by a 30-second video clip because I know myself, you take a 30-second video clip and lift it out of the context, a whole lot of things can be said that didn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, just think about this. We know AI is coming along quite quickly. Somebody can take a picture of me. They can animate my face. They can take clips of all the sermons I've preached and get the same voice and vocabulary. And they can make you say something you never said. So we're going to need incredible discernment to know what is true and what is not. And we do have to confront sin, absolutely. But let's not wage war before we investigate properly. In the New Testament, Matthew 18 lays out a standard protocol for dealing with sin. And it's one of the key points in that passage that essentially says, when a brother confronts or sins against you, offends you, you go to that brother one-on-one. You don't post about it. You don't spread it around one-on-one. If the issue isn't resolved, two-to-one. You bring somebody along, in ideally an impartial person, not like your best friend that's going to side with you, but an impartial person to deal with the issue. If it still isn't resolved, you bring it to the elders of your church to resolve. So the idea, the principle is that the number of people involved in the conflict grows only as there's more clarity about the sin itself and less willingness to be repentant. Okay, so if somebody, maybe the issue isn't clear. Well, you need to clear it up before it gets wider because it's only going to muddy it. And if somebody's repentant, there's no need for it to go wider. It's only after the situation becomes clear, yes, this is absolutely a sin that needs to be confronted, that it expands to the elders and whatnot and to eventually the church. Okay, so we're looking at the way they went, but look at this. It's also strategic who they sent to deal with this issue. Representatives of each tribe of Israel and a key figure named Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the priest. Now, some of you may know this name. He's not to be confused with the bad Phineas, the son of Eli that did bad things. This is a good Phineas, okay? But he has a track record of zealous nature, of his zealous nature for the Lord. So, In verse 17 of Joshua 22, Phineas is talking to the people. He's confronting them. And this is what he says. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor? And you might read that and be like, what's he talking about? Rightly so. If you rewind, in the plains of Moab where Moses was, 
This is recorded in Numbers chapter 25. You can read about it there. When Moses was at the helm, the people of Israel, before they entered the land, had gotten entangled with the women of Moab. It actually says in Numbers 25, they were whoring with the daughters of Moab. And they were, these women, leading them astray to false gods and worship. And God's anger was kindled against Israel. And he told Moses, destroy those that are in sin. What ended up happening, it appears from the text, is that that command did not immediately get followed. And so what happens is there's a bunch of people very distraught over the sin. They're weeping about the sin. But what actually ends up happening, an Israelite man and a a woman from Moab, right in front of all the people, la-di-da, go to their tent to do you-know-what. And Phineas sees this. And he is recorded as being so zealous for the Lord that he actually goes into the tent and stabs them with a spear together through their abdomens. Unbelievably gross, but the right move. People were not taking God's name seriously. God had told them and Phineas was the one to act. And so God actually commends Phineas for being jealous for God's name, rightly so. And this is the Phineas that they send to confront the sin of the Eastern tribes or the apparent sin of the Eastern tribes. He is not only a priest, so he has a spiritual authority, but he also has a reputation for being devoted to the Lord. And this is just a reminder to us, there is some strategy in who you send to deal with sin issues. So I'm not responsible to fly all over the world to confront every Christian on their sin. That would not be, first of all, possible. And it's also not very strategic. If I walk up to somebody that I've never met to confront them on their sin, odds are real good. There's somebody closer that was meant to confront them first. Somebody else, a family member. So you have a family issue. The family is supposed to deal with it. You don't just run right away to, to your pastor to go confront the sin. Members of the family that are believers need to deal with it. In a small group context, the small group leader deals with it. Ideally in an elders council, elders are calling out elders. This is the ideal thing. But this also shows us, and Numbers 25 reminds us, when nobody is calling out sin, God will use one person who is righteous to speak the truth. So if other people are abdicating their responsibility out of love for God and of love for other people, we must speak. But give the other person a chance to speak first. (laughs) In terms of strategy, though, I think not only how they went, who they sent, but what they said is also So helpful. Verse 16 shows us they pointed out their sin was rebellion against God. And that's so important. When you go to confront sin, you don't make it about yourself. I failed here before saying even things like, to use the illustration of the guy who's lied, you've lied. I've lied before. I know how hard it is with lying. Blah, 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 blah. That was a mistake. The moment you put yourself in there at all, is not wisdom. When you confront sin, you state clearly the sin, state that it's an offensive against God and his righteous standard and that repentance needs to happen. You don't in that moment need to try to build a relational bridge of, I've struggled with the same thing too, because that will only give them excuses, give them ammunition for their excuses for how they're going to back out of it. When somebody's confronted in sin, they just need to know this is sin. This is God's word. You need to repent taking ourselves out of this situation. So letting it be clear, not cloudy or vague, not just dropping a little hint, 
but addressing straight on. I think there's a large slice of Christians who make half-hearted attempts at confronting sin, but don't really want to uncover anything. So they provide opportunity for excuses and then they believe those excuses. And maybe this is me confessing my disposition. I know sometimes I have to confront something and I just want to get it off my chest. So I confront, but then I I don't really want to dig in. The first half-hearted excuse they give that's somewhat plausible deniability. Sure. Okay. Yep. So uh, this would be a ridiculous example. This hasn't happened, but You're talking to a brother who's committed sexual immorality by going to the strip club Saturday night. And you come and you speak and you say, brother, you've committed sexual immorality. You've gone to the strip club on Saturday night. And then he's like, but I'm sharing the gospel and my eyes are closed. You're like, okay, sounds good. Let's go. Let's, let's, Let's just forgive that and move on or let's pretend nothing happened. Do you really care in that moment? That would be a a ludicrous example. Believe it or not, things like that have been said before. You're not actually interested in getting to the root of the issue. We need to be able to probe around a bit to actually address and not to let them off deceiving themselves so quickly that there's not actually sin. Now, we don't need to go looking for a, a, quote, devil behind every bush and question every single motive. However, if there's sin, we don't want that to go undetected in somebody else's life, just like, reverse it, we don't want it to go undetected in our own life. We know when we are confronted in sin, the first thing we do is get defensive. We, we no, no, this, that, the other thing. We want, if we understand the truth, for somebody else to see past that and to probe past it. Check this out though. They're not just strategic in what they said who they sent. They're also strategic in what they are willing to sacrifice. Verse 19, I think we should reread. It says, but now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. The land has been divided. People have already started to get ideas probably about what house they're going to build on their property. They're like, this is our land. That's your land. However, they say, if, if the issue is your land and you need to come over into our land and take some possession, we'll give it to you. Just don't rebel against God. This is how concerned they are about obedience for their brothers. They were willing to sacrifice their land, which leads me naturally to the question of how far and how much we would sacrifice to see each other prevented from sin. What obstacles would we remove? So there's a wise way to do this and an unwise way to way, an unwise way to do it. So let's say a man doesn't have money to buy food. He's going to be tempted to steal. That dishonors God's name. So if somebody is, they've lost their job, they have literally no income, no way to provide food for themselves. Everybody understands why they would steal. It's not right and it dishonors God's name. We would in that case come in and provide food or ideally provide work that provides income for food so that he can do something proper with his hands as as scripture tells us. That would be good. We would be helping him not to sin. But however, if you have somebody who steals simply because they're discontent, so they have enough, but they want more. If you pay that guy's bills or provide them with finances, you're never going to satisfy their discontentment and you're not actually getting to the 
the root of the matter. So on one hand, I'm saying, and scripture I think is portraying here, be willing to sacrifice my material for brothers to help them not stumble into sin, but don't be foolish. We got to get to the heart of the matter. They were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to be strategic in what they said, how they went, who they said, who they sent, and they're sacrificing. And it just shows they're committed to not just getting it off their chest, saying, yeah, we confronted the sin. Now we're clear. They're actually considering the outcome, God's glory and the good of people. Now, as we consider how to do confrontation well, we got to switch roles for a moment. Now we're going to talk about how to receive confrontation well. And this is probably the, the most uh, necessary thing for us to focus on this morning because this is where I see most of us get it wrong when we receive confrontation properly, myself included. We should, I believe, receive confrontation willingly, not defensively. That's what this, the Eastern tribes show us in God's word. We are to willingly hear the charge, give an appropriate answer, which may include a defense of our actions, but not get defensive. So there's a difference between giving a defense I'd like to portray and being defensive. So if you're defensive, you will not let any accusation against you stand. You will defend yourself to the death, even if you are wrong. You will not hear any criticisms. You just instantly get walled up. I will not. People are attacking and you become defensive. Giving a defense, on the other hand, is being part of seeking the truth. Somebody makes an accusation. You want to be able to state the truth, but you're okay with being found in the wrong in the end, so long as truth prevails. That's giving a defense as the Eastern tribes do. And I want you to look at the text to see just how clear this is. They say in response, they say, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, May the Lord himself take vengeance. They are saying in that moment, we agree with you. If this is sin, we should be destroyed. God should take vengeance. Rather than lashing out angrily at the Western tribes for such an accusation, they just come out and say, you know what? If that's what we've done, we should be punished, which is a huge, great relational tip. If you're ever confronted in sin, the first thing you can do is agree that that sin is serious. And that sin, if it fits the context, you would gladly take the discipline. You may have an opportunity to give a response to why you think that's not the case, but just to agree in the moment is a brilliant play for not only relationships, but also for God's glory, because you're saying the same standard of righteousness. You're like, yes. So if someone was to come at you and say, you're divisive, and you were to say, instead of, I'm not divisive, but to say, which is not divisiveness necessarily, but if you were to say, I'm not divisive, what you could say instead is, I realize to cause division in Christ's body is a serious sin. I don't want to do that. And if I have done that, I'm open to the discipline and God's judgment. That kind of response would be radical. Then you could go on to give a defense of why you don't believe that to be the case if that's the situation. See, the Eastern tribes go on to explain their actions that while appearing rebellious are actually 
out of love for God and a desire to be recognized as his people. To help set this in our mind, we live in Windsor. Detroit's right on the other side of the river. We kind of get how there's two people groups separated by a river. And even though we can have a lot of great relationships, there is kind of a, there's a natural boundary. Similarly, the people of Israel were concerned that over time, this natural boundary of the Jordan River would become, well, the real people of Israel are on this side. You're not really the real people of Israel, which is a legit concern. And so they decided to build this altar as a witness, not as a rebellion against God, but as a reminder, we are part of the people of God. Think about how this could have gone wrong. The Eastern tribes could have, when confronted, just lashed out in anger. They could have said things like this. We have sacrificed for you. We fought on your side of the river. We were in the trenches with you. And now you question our loyalty to God. How dare you make these assumptions of us? How dare you assume that we are compromisers? How dare you use such a harsh tone in your defense against us? They could have totally taken things that way, escalated things and refused to meet even with them. But instead, they willingly receive the rebuke. They give an appropriate defense and then they let it up to their accusers to decide. Get that. That must have been some serious trust. They actually say, if we have done this, do what you need to do. Can you imagine you're being confronted, you or I are being confronted, and you say, if we have done this serious sin against God, please give us the discipline we need. That would be an incredibly mature response. Think about this. How many times have you been confronted by a brother or a sister about some sin in your life and realized, wow, this is not pleasant at all. But it's actually a tremendous gift. I actually think it's a gift probably many of us have not received as often as we would appreciate or benefit from. Because we kind of just, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to confront it. It's a gift. It's a gift. I think somebody shared with me after the first service that profuse are the kisses of an enemy, but a friend will wound there's a, a proverb, Proverbs 27, and I'm misquoting it, but that is the idea. The wounds of a friend can be trusted, but the enemy multiplies kisses. Sometimes, though, your friends, Christian brothers and sisters who are speaking rebuke will get it wrong. They will actually accuse you of something that you are not guilty of, just like what happened here. I've had it happen. I remember years ago, a brother witnessed an interaction between me and someone else and he got a small window out of context and he called me out for my behavior, which didn't make sense in that small window of context. And I was not entirely pleased to be called out. Fortunately, it didn't blow up crazy. I wish I had read this text before. But in the end, was able to explain, actually, here's the broader context, in which case this makes sense. And that brother was fine with it in the end. But I look back and think, I'm so thankful that he said something. Because to him, this is what it appeared like. Which then all of a sudden, maybe it appeared like that to other people as well. And maybe it's unclear because it's out of context. But I'm so thankful he was willing to stick out his neck and confront what appeared to be sin, even though in the end, it wasn't. It was a gift. Here's what I've learned in conflict through the years. Rarely has someone been ready to respond as soon as you confront them. 
and rarely am I ready to respond immediately when being confronted. I'm not always great with my words right on the fly. Some of you are like that too. Some of you have incredible ability to respond on the fly and respond with composure properly. That's not the majority of us. So let's say you're being confronted in your sin or even a parent's sin. What we can do in that moment is say something like, thank you for bringing this forward. I believe that sin is serious because I care deeply about giving God glory through my life. And I'd like to take a bit to process this. So you're basically saying, thank you for being willing to risk the relationship to confront it. Sin is serious. I get that. I need some time. I need some time to think through this and then don't just run away. <laughs> you need some time to process it and give people time as you confront. If, you've confront. if you're confronting someone in their sin, often you've been thinking about it a long time, trying to think about your approach, how to speak to it. They may not even yet be aware. This might be the first opportunity the Holy Spirit's using to convict them of their sin. And it's pretty hard to go from zero to 100 that fast. So give them some time to think about it. Now, the final principle that we're given by this text is that when an issue is resolved, we need to put the matter to rest. Scripture says of the response of the Eastern tribes that it was good in their eyes of Phineas and the chiefs. Phineas said, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against our Lord. So he could affirm, hey, no rebellion's taken place. Good. And so let's move on. They were quick to also bring that news to not only the rest of the chiefs there, but the rest of Israel on the west side of the Jordan. Verse 33 says, and the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel and the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them. Phineas did not have an ax to grind. He was not just waiting to pounce upon the failure of the people of Israel. He was zealous for the Lord and willing to go to war against his own flesh and blood. But at the same time, when it was clear that that was not necessary, he was just as zealous to show zeal for the Lord in pursuing restoration and peace. So I think we can all admit when you get into a conflict, you're addressing sin. What can happen is you get to a point where it's so frustrating. It's so overwhelming. It's so not going the way you want it to go that you can actually not want resolution. You can actually reach a point where you're not interested in the other person's repentance. You actually don't even want it. You would rather be able to continue not united with the person because they've said now they've only added insult to injury. It's only gotten worse. And so you reach a point in the argument where you now give up and you're not willing to seek restoration. We might just as soon excommunicate them, be done with them, be gone. But that reveals a bitterness of heart or an unforgiving heart. There's quite likely some of us in the room struggling with exactly that right now. Perhaps it started well. You confronted somebody else in their sin. You said what needed to be said. They gave a defense, gave an excuse. The, the issue escalated, but then now you have fallen into sin where you actually don't want to forgive them. You would just as soon not see them repent and to just suffer all the consequences of their decisions. You've allowed hatred to replace love. You've allowed bitterness to replace graciousness. And maybe, actually quite likely, you've taken your eyes off of Jesus and placed them on yourself. 
This is your loving rebuke to repent. To repent. Look at Jesus. Look at his perfect forgiveness of your sin. He speaks the truth and he is ready to restore. Hebrews 8 verse 12 reminds us that God is merciful and will remember our sins no more. Your sin against someone else and their sin against you pales by comparison to the depth of our sin against God. And yet he confronts us in truth and restores us and is willing to forgive us our sins and remember them no more. He even confronts those closest to him. You'll maybe remember a time when he confronted Peter who stepped out of line. He uses wisdom. He does it well. And he's ready to put the matter to rest when repentance has taken place. And are you willing to? We need to confront sin and we need to be confronted in sin. It's going to happen. It should actually be a regular practice. That would be such a blessing to us. We'd be able to walk in greater holiness before God. But when it's resolved, it needs to be resolved. It needs to be done. We need to be back in fellowship before God for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so may we do that. May we commit to resolving conflict, to engaging in confrontation and being engaged in confrontation in a way that brings glory to God and good to one another. And let's pray to that end. 